today on CityCast Boise. After getting a big thumbs up from voters, Mayor Lauren McLean has just started her second term in office. So I was wondering, along with my colleague, Hey Boise newsletter editor Blake Hunter, what's her plan for addressing the biggest issues our city is facing? We ask her about our housing crisis, the rise in pedestrian deaths, and whether the new zoning code is really about to change everything. It's Tuesday, January 30th. I'm Frankie Barnhill, and this is what Boise's talking about. Mayor McLean, thank you for joining CityCast Boise. Oh, Blake, it's great to be here, and Frankie as well. Thanks so much for having me. We're happy to have you. I want to jump in. You have one hectic term under your belt uh, in ways that not anyone could have really foreseen, but you got the support of 55% of voters in November, and I'm, I've been curious about how this term just feels different to you, uh, having that experience, and you know, so many things have changed uh, since you were first elected in 2019. So how are you thinking about and approaching this term differently? Sure. You know, that's such a great question. And I, I do want to reflect back on the last four years because it was truly an honor to be elected to serve the people of Boise. And what a four years it was. Um, I have said to the community as well as to the staff at the city of Boise that we were called on to do so many things that we could not have anticipated. And I am so proud of the impact that our city had and the focus that we kept on our through line through covid through so many conflicts last four years of taking care of people. And so these next four years will be different, but the voters, when I knocked on doors across the city, were clear. They wanted me to continue working with the people of Boise, with the employees of the city of Boise on affordability and housing, making sure we've got homes of all shapes and sizes for all people that call Boise home. They want us to address um, and prevent homelessness, to keep the record that we've demonstrated of taking care of people and preventing the crises that we've seen in other cities here in Boise by taking care of people. They want us to work on climate readiness and climate action to prepare for the future um, and to build on the foundation that we've developed um, with jobs for the future. So in these next four years, it does feel different because right about now, four years ago, we were all wondering what was happening. Reading the headlines. Yep. Yep. So now what we have is four years where we are beyond COVID, where we are seasoned and have demonstrated that we can deliver and we can take all that work and do more for the people of Boise. And that's what I'm so excited about. Yeah, I mean, just a truly unprecedented four years. Uh, but this this time around, you decided to run very deliberately on uh, this term that you used called Boise values as a way to distinguish your vision of, of the city and, and for the city moving forward. It's hard not to read that, um, from my perspective at least, as a euphemism for kind of liberal values, uh, at least with, in contrast with the rest of the state. So I'm, I'm curious, why, why did you choose to use that particular language? This race was about a lot of things. It was about our need to continue the good work to ensure housing at Boise budgets and the other topics that we brought up. But it was also, um, as you mentioned, a race for the future Boise, a race in which Boise values came into play. And I wouldn't say that that's liberal or conservative. Like Boiseans have always demonstrated that we care for people, that everyone who ha- wants to call Boise home, that calls Boise home is welcome here. And so in my mind, this is about 
truly making good on the promise of being a city that's both safe and welcoming for everyone, where everyone means everyone. Right. And I, I appreciate that and respect that. And at the same time, uh, you know, across the state, our statewide politicians are moving kind of increasingly further to the right uh, and getting more extreme with, you know, things like abortion bans, but so many other other things as well. What does that tell you about the future of Boise uh, with the rest of the state? Oh, you know, that's a great question because um, I got a lot of residents asking me that. Yeah. Given what's happening in the state, I wouldn't even say necessarily that what's happening in the state house reflects Republicans of the state. Now, Idahoans have always been people that are live and let live folks that take care of the communities they live in, that work together, roll up their sleeves and create solutions. But I had so many people in conversation on porches and coffee shops and others, but it's some of those porch conversations with moms and dads that like ring the loudest. And those are the ones where people are asking, do our kids really have a place here? Now, will our kids come back here, given what we're hearing and the rise in extremism in the state? And my answer to them, and I'd say that Boiseans' answer to them, resoundingly, yes, that we remain as we always have been, a city that will focus, regardless of what's happening around us, on taking care of people. And in these times, it becomes even more important to be clear about that because of the attacks on the most marginalized that we are seeing in the state. During the legislative session, yes, but throughout the year, really. And we saw that even in the election, how the negative campaigning attacked individuals um, and people. And Boiseans said with this vote on their doorsteps and their conversations with me and with each other, and continue to say as they show up at the legislature to stand up for people, that we are a community that values everyone, and we will continue to fight to protect that value of everyone and to protect the people that call Boise home as we seek to create a future that provides jobs and homes and parks and open space and all the things we love about this place. It's nothing without protecting the people we care about. Mayor McLean, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about housing, specifically in the context of the zoning code rewrite, which, of yeah. course, was a huge project, uh, something that you spent so much time and energy on over the years, along with city staff and city council members. I'm just wondering, you know, we're about two months into the code's implementation, so lots of time to really see how it will make changes. But one of the big promises of the code was more affordable housing. Do you have any specific examples of how the zoning code is making Boise a more, more affordable place to live right now or already or things that you see on the horizon really soon in early 2024? Yes, that's a great question. And I'm really proud of the work that our city and, and importantly, our community did um, around the modern zoning code and the engagement that we saw from all parts of the city, from all walks of life, people showing up and talking about their hopes and dreams for the city. Now, we've got to be mindful that with any zoning code, it's a, mar it's a market-based approach to you know, seek partnership to address affordability and all these other things that Boiseans want. And development takes time. So you got to put an application. The developers have to be ready to do it, what have you. So I don't expect that we'll see overnight a whole bunch of changes. However, I am super excited about, and this gets to your question about specific impact. Since December 1st, when the zoning code went into effect, We've had applications for 55 accessory dwelling units. 
folks that had waited until the zoning code went into effect, and because the tools in this new modern zoning code make it easier for folks that want to build homes for people on the space that they have. So that, I'd say, is a great like short-term example of the impact. And of course, it takes a while to build those. But the process has started and applicants have been clear that they were waiting for the zoning code to begin implementation. Wow. OK, so you're already seeing this kind of pent up demand that was just kind of on the sidelines waiting. Yes. And I'd also point out, you know, you probably saw in the paper um, the proposal at 13th and Camelsback. So it's I mean, I should say 13th and Heron, but we all know it is Camelsback Park, 13th Street, you know. Uh, and Right and, by uh, Camelsback. Yeah, right, yeah. Right mm-hmm. by Camelsback, right across yep. from the picnic tables. Um, somebody put in an application to have like a neighborhood coffee shop type thing. Those things that people love to visit in Hyde Park and in Bound Crossing, we can have those in our neighborhoods. And right there across from a busy park, I think it's a great example of someone that saw the new tools and said, you know what, I've got a solution. Um, and I expect that we'll see more of those. And then I do want to highlight, too, the CWI campus um, at Whitewater, right along the river. They've had that land for a while. They, too, were waiting for the modern zoning code to go into effect to then put in their application for what will be a great place. It's going to include classrooms and spots for community college students, but also housing of all sorts of prices and sizes, um, as well as, you know, places where people can stop when they're on the green belt and enjoy a cup of coffee, a drink, what have you. Um, And all of that, too, that application waited for this modern zoning code to go into effect, and it's now in the process. Which, again, we won't see, you know, those buildings built tomorrow. Um, but it's another great example of the impact that the modern zoning code will, will have and is having and the alignment that it has um, with the goals that we set forth. And I do want to flag for folks that online there's a development tracker. So if you're wondering what's happening in your neighborhood, if what the impact of the modern zoning code has been so far, never before could you just go online and easily, unless you knew how to use, you know, weird tech systems that developers <laughs> use, you can go online now and like I can do it myself, um, as can my neighbor, look at what's happening not only in your neighborhood, but citywide to see the applications that have been put in. Right. And of course, the applications is one part. It still needs to be improved. You mentioned that uh, fourplex, I think, by Camel's Back. Boise Dev wrote about it. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, yeah, And I think it said, you know, a cafe and retail on the bottom yeah. floor, a coffee shop, and then some residential Mouthing. units above. Yeah. 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 But of course, you know, there has been some questions from the public about like what part of the process they could be a part of and that they there's some groups who feel like the zoning code won't allow them to raise questions or concerns. Do you have anything to say about that right now? Yeah. You know, those, the modern zoning code with the process that we set up actually engages um, the public, the neighborhoods, what have you, um, earlier in the process than it did before. So, you know, we often heard that folks felt as though when the neighborhood meeting was being held by a developer, it was already baked, right? Like they already had their plans, they had all their stuff. And the pr- new process now requires that the developer go to the neighborhood sooner with that meeting um, and get more feedback. So, They're going to see less baked products and ideas when they have that neighborhood meeting. And the council was also responsive to the needs of the community with regard to process and changed some of the notification as well as times at which the public can engage. I want to take a step back and rewind to your own story of coming to Boise a little bit. So you and your husband visited Boise more than 20 years ago uh, and kind of fell in love with the city and decided to move here. Can you tell people about that? Yeah, we did. Um, and it was 
So my husband and I met in high school. We went to different colleges. Um, he ended up having to take a fifth year of school. So we got married when I graduated, and then he had his final year of school left. So and we were married in August. Made it through college, though, we together. That's impressive. College. Yeah. <laughs> I always say to him, it's a good thing we didn't go to college together because we might not have made it then. Yeah. <laughs> so it actually worked well um, that we went to different schools. I wanted to move west somewhere because I'd worked for the governor of Montana for summers as a policy intern and just really loved the life and the people and the landscape. And so when Scott was looking for tech jobs and I was looking at law schools, we looked west and really thought that we were headed to a bigger coastal city. Um, and he got a call in um, February of 1998 from Micron. We weren't really taking it seriously. I've told Mike Ron this too. I appreciate the expense that they that they outlaid to get Scott and I to come visit Boise. We're not taking this seriously. Right. Towards the end of March, we came to visit. And right before that, HP had called and I thought they were the same company. So I was talking about our trip. This is when you had a landline and I picked up the phone. And um, they're like, oh, so you're coming to Boise? Well, we need to interview Scott in Boise. So he ended up doing two interviews, but while he was interviewing, HP picked him up on, at the airport. And I did this tour of Boise, and it was so interesting because the realtor was trying to explain to me that I could have everything in Boise that I had anywhere else. But what I was saying as we were driving was these neighborhoods that were so different than everywhere else, a landscape that was nothing like anywhere else. Um, and so as soon as I was done with that tour that went way too long, I put on my running shoes um, and so ran along the Greenbelt, you know, 8th or 13th Street, I can't remember which one, and managed to find Camel's Back and then hit a trail and ran into the hills. Mm. And I just fell hook, line and sinker for this place. It was so unexpected and su such a gift that we had this random stroke of luck and we you know, changed our plans and we're here three months later. We took a long road trip to get here and um, arrived on July 4th, 1998, and have been here ever since. Okay, that's, I can't get this out of my head, but that's such a weird coincidence because I was born later that month. Um, oh, so I'm right? just hung up on that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so now, I mean, I mean, yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, that with yeah. us, first off. Uh, and then second is kind of talking about those like porch conversations that you're, you've had with people. I'm in my mid-20s now. I'm 25. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people my age, we're always talking about like whether we can stay um, and whether we can afford to buy a home and, and put down roots because it feels like the barrier to being part of this community, like long term, feels so high right now. Yeah. Um, no matter how much we want to. Like, I really want to live here and I want to make it work. Uh, but it's hard not to think about, um, you know, picking up and, and leaving, um, especially with a lot of stuff going on in the state. Uh, so what what do you say to people uh, like me, you know, my age who feel pretty hopeless sometimes? First off, it's I mean, I'll say to you directly, it is so important that you stay here, right? <laughs> we, it is so important that you stay here. Leave for a little bit if you want, but come back here. And, um, <laughs> and I mean, my daughter's 24. And as I said, Scott and I got married young. It's like our life was on fast forward. And um, we were what? We were, I was, I was 23 when I moved here. So I've lived more than half my life here. Um, I was 24 when we had our first child. And... I was 24 when we bought our home and we didn't, we had school loans. Wow. We, did, we didn't do it with parents helping us. It's like yeah. we saved money 
We were singularly focused on it. And we were able with that single purchase to really build strength and stability for our family. I want that for you. I want that for my kids. I want that um, for folks that call Boise home. And right now it's really hard to do that. And so that is why while a city can't do it all and we've got to build partnerships, but it, it is why we have looked in such a focused manner on what we can do around housing. The modern zoning code is a big place, piece of that because it'll make it makes space for people to build homes. And the more homes you have, the more different price points you're going to have for folks to live here like you, right? Mm -hmm. I, imagine like living on a transit corridor with a coffee shop and a restaurant um, and some retail underneath where you can walk outside, jump on the bus, get to your job. Saves you money because you can ride a bus um, and you're living in a neighborhood surrounded by people where you can walk to parks and other things. It's why we've looked at how we use our land that's parking lots and tool sheds and other things or purchase land we can to put out to developers and say, give it your best shot. You know, tell us what you can do and what affordability points you can provide so we can build homes for Boiseans. Um, and you see that happening around the community on State Street at Arthur, up at Franklin and Orchard. There's mm -hmm. some others under the works. And um, it's why we've looked at innovative policies. We crowdsourced some ideas from the public and they said, let's try tiny homes. And, you know, just this fall, a family, a couple with kids moved their tiny home from somewhere else further out of the city that they'd had it into Boise because now it's allowed and they can live closer to parks, schools and, and their jobs. And so we're looking at all these ideas and we're trying things and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. We're taking a build, measure, learn approach of like, it's really important for you and for other Boiseans to have a place where you can live that you can afford. So we're going to try everything and then double down on what works. It's so interesting because you're kind of asking, you're making a pitch to Blake and Blake's friends to, you know, yeah. stick with us, uh, give it a little bit more time, let the zoning code changes uh, really, really show up um, in the real world. Um, and I think about, you know, a community that doesn't have any time left, um, which is our most vulnerable community, our, our, yeah. our homeless community, the folks experiencing homelessness in Boise. Um, and of course, housing and homelessness is the same conversation. What is Boise going to do? What are you going to do as mayor this year to end homelessness, to get us closer to that? So I don't even want to talk about it in what are we going to do. The question really is, what are we doing? Um, because the last four years, we have focused on this because I know it's 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 so connected to housing, as you said, and it's a concern of Boiseans. We want to make sure that we stay the safe and welcoming place that we are today as we grow and we can do that. So we are looking at both and are implementing both short-term solutions and long-term solutions. You heard a lot of talk during the campaign of, oh, you know, the city spent all this money to keep people housed at a hotel. Well, if we hadn't kept them housed in the hotel, they'd be on the streets. And so I said, look, ideally, we'd have partners in this space because there's no other city in this region that's doing this alone. I look at Salt Lake and they've got the state and the county. I look at Reno, right. state and the county, Spokane, right. same thing. We, we are, you know, actively seeking and committed a partnership, but we weren't going to let folks be unhoused. So we're, we both address the short-term need of keeping people under roofs where we can, as well as invest in long-term solutions. So right now, you'll see over where Fire Station 5 used to be, a construction project, because we're doing a new fire station. Right next door, there will be housing for folks exiting homelessness. It's in the design phases right now. 
next to the first permanent supportive housing at New Path, the developer is already committed to the second one right next door where they're going to share services. That's in the planning process. And then you saw, you likely saw that in the fall, we announced the purchase of the park apartments. I am so excited about that because by the end of this year, you know, giving some time because development always seems to kind of flow from a calendar perspective. But our goal is by the end of this year, families exiting homelessness will move there. And then in all of these apartment home projects that we're building on city land in partnership with developers, there are homes in those apartments dedicated to families and individuals exiting homelessness. So when Franklin and Orchard starts welcoming residents this winter, I think about 10% of those homes up there will be for folks exiting homelessness um, as some of the examples of what we're working on. Yeah, and I really appreciate all those specific examples. It sounds like a lot of things will come online in 2024, potentially. But I do think about like stepping back, you know, comparing us to other cities, which of course that happened a lot during the campaign. Boise's population of people experiencing homelessness is is so small compared to other cities that it feels like it's manageable. We could we could solve this completely if we really wanted to. Um, and it, it sounds like things are being addressed. I recognize that. But because this is such a dangerous thing when people are living unhoused um, and because of extreme weather events with climate change, yeah. the the winter that we winter storms we just experienced and then the, the high, high heat that we get in the summer. What is holding us back from ending homelessness right now from your perspective? Well, I'll say this. We do want to solve this problem. So I want to be clear on that. We are committed to it. We're doing everything that we can. We need more partners at the table. You know, I look to some of the announcements that the mayor of Salt Lake has made. She's got the governor right there with her and the county right there with her. Really incredible partnership that brings solutions to scale. And I, I don't want to minimize the partnerships that we have in building long-term permanent supportive housing for residents that are exiting homelessness, because we can't do that without partnerships with developers. But we need resources. We need more people at the table, more agencies at the table, and we can bring these solutions to scale and address this fully. Because you're right. We have the opportunity to stay ahead and ultimately to end this here because of the scale of, of the need that we see right here in Boise. Mayor McLean, the last year has been really dangerous and really deadly, frankly, for pedestrians and cyclists in the city and outside of Boise limits um, around the Treasure Valley. But you're controlling uh, at least at least the nexus of Boise to a degree. Um, I know that, you know, of course, there was a big outcry after, you know, one well-known tragedy when a 16-year-old was hit by a truck in the North End, um, which is one of the most ostensibly bike walk friendly parts of the city. Um, what's the status on the task force that was going to be created for addressing uh, these deaths and these tragedies and to make sure that they don't happen anymore? Sure. This is both creature of street design and bad behavior. Like we got to be clear about <laughs> that, that, you know, I, I met with the family members of the boy who died that you referenced. And we were talking about the steps that ACHD has taken since then to the highway district ACHD. Data County Highway um, District, yep, yep. Sorry about that. To, you know, put in these things they call armadillos, to make it clear that there's a bike lane that pedestrians are crossing. But at the end of the day, in too many of these instances, people are running red lights um, and doing things that 
you know, design won't stop, right? It's you got to be willing to follow the rules and keep everybody safe. So there's a personal responsibility component that I that I, I I'd be remiss not to bring up. But all that said, we also have a responsibility as the city. The task force you mentioned is chaired by Councilman Jimmy Halliburton and ACHD Chair Alexis Pickering. They've met multiple times. They're police officers on the committee, as well as some agency folks and staff from my office. They've now reviewed the cases that have taken place in Boise, um, and they are working on recommendations. And I look forward to seeing um, their recommendations. There is a great alignment right now between the highway district and the city on the need to take these steps. Um, I'm committed to it. The council is committed to it, as is the highway district um, commission. And while we aren't in charge of the streets, we don't own them, we don't build them, we don't manage them. Um, we've said, okay, it's important that we are clear that we have vision zero goals, which means that we aspire to have zero pedestrian deaths related within a calendar year. Um, and that there are steps that you can take to better design your streets and the environment around them to get cars to slow down, to create more space for more people. Um, that are choosing to move as they as they should and have a right to do um, on foot or on bike. Do you feel like your hands are tied with this? Because as you mentioned, yeah, the Ada County Highway District, they control Boise streets. You're in a very unique position as as the mayor of a city that doesn't actually have control over over the streets. Do you feel like your hands are tied or do you feel like there are mechanisms? I mean, for example, one of our uh, readers, uh, one of our Hey Boise newsletter readers, Kenneth, wrote in um, asking about the red lights. You mentioned people running red lights being just being negligent. It feels like maybe more patrols, right? That's something that you could potentially control as mayor. Maybe you can't fully control, uh, you know, medians creating them, but advocating along with ACHD around that. Um, I just, I'm just curious about that. To what extent do you have power in this? Sure. You know, I, I will say on many topics that the easiest thing is to say, oh, it's all the highway district, right? Oh, <laughs> right. Just blame you know, them. Yeah. Bl- you know, throw my hands. There's nothing I can do. That's not an appropriate answer, nor is it the case. Uh, there are things that we can do that we will do, we are doing. And a big part of that is you got to build a partnership so that you can work to ensure that the agency that does have bigger impact is willing to take steps in partnership with you. We spent a lot of time rebuilding those relationships in my first term. You know what? A cop at every corner is not something that is realistic, right? Because we've also got residents that um, want our police to be available for other calls. We have a lot of corners in this state. Having patrols, we are increasing them because we need to as we grow, but that's not going to prevent this in the long run. If folks, as, as our police chief, I thought so rightly said last fall, look, if a cop at a corner is what's preventing you from running a red light when a kid might be crossing the street, like in my language, check yourself, right? Like yep. there's more to it than having police officers watching red lights. That said, enforcement is important and key because folks that don't follow the law ought to be held accountable. But I look at this and say, we, I have a role in ensuring that we have a Vision Zero plan and that we take steps to implement it. It is so important that the mayor of the city um, have the relationships necessary with the agencies that do have control to influence and impact the design of the future. And it can be frustrating because we have, in Ada County, there are over 5,000 
um, miles of snow plowable roads. So I think maybe that means 2,500 miles of streets. That's a lot of roads that have already been built without an eye to protecting everybody that uses our roads. And that's people on foot on bikes. So there's a lot of catch up to do. And so right now my role is to support a task force that provides um, recommendations, do what we can, where we can to influence the decisions being made around design, enforce when we can and must, as well as look for more opportunities from a grants perspective, from an influence perspective, to move the needle on ensuring that we have streets that are safe for everyone. I'm glad that you brought up police because I feel like after 2023, uh, I you know we'd we'd kind of be remiss not to ask about uh, police shootings. So you know, Boise police had one one shooting in 2020, five in 2021, and three in 2022, uh, and then it jumped up to six uh, in 2023. Four of those being fatal, and so I just have to ask, like, what are you doing right now? I mean, I know we've talked to Nicole McKay uh, on CityCast Boise, the um, new director of the Office of Police Accountability, uh, about her her visions for, for the police department moving forward and kind of increasing that accountability. But in, in the interim, as that process kicks up, you know, she's reviewing cases that have already happened. Yeah. What, I mean, how do you, how are you working to ensure that that doesn't happen again this year? The important piece here is that the Office of Police Accountability, as you mentioned, Nicole McKay, um, is reviewing those cases and providing recommendations because we don't want to see any shootings. As you said, it, it's, it's harmful to the families of the victims. Frankly, it's harmful to the officers and the families of the officers to be in these situations. Our best day is to have none, and that is what we aspire to see. Um, and then recommendations afterwards. Those recommendations, as she receives these reports and goes through all of these past shootings are going to be key to ensuring that this doesn't happen again. Um, the council has asked, I have asked, what are the through lines? Are there, you know, needs beyond what training can control and how do we address those? It's likely bringing other partners and stakeholders to the table. What needs to change if things need to change in training um, to prevent this in the future? Those are the, those are the questions she's asking as she reviews these reports you know, founded or unfounded, she's going to look beyond that at some of the things that could have been different that might have prevented these shootings from happening. And it's our expectation, and I say our because it's the city council's expectation, my expectation, that the police department takes those recommendations and implements them to prevent these from happening in the future. Yeah. And we certainly await await more of those reports uh, and glad that that office is, you know, back up to full steam. Um, I want to pivot to Another quite grim uh, conversation that I think there's no, maybe no immediate answers, but one that we have to keep checking in on is uh, Boise's and Idaho generally, uh, the OBGYN uh, community and kind of mass mass leaving uh, of, of doctors and physicians. And this was actually a question that a Hey Boise reader wrote in about OBGYNs are scared and they're leaving the state. And yeah. I guess just snapshot January 2024. I'm I'm sure that we're we ha- will have to check in with you again about this uh, in the future, just as you know, folks have before. But what's what's your snapshot vision of that that situation right now? I would say that they are not exaggerating. You know, for our daughters, sisters, mothers, doctors, uh, a scary time, and it's why we won't prioritize resources to help the state um, in these investigations. 
And it's why I say when people ask about numbers to look to the hospitals because they are documenting the doctors that we're losing um, and the real world, real life impacts of these laws here in the state. Um, I am deeply committed, I always have been, to the decisions around reproduction being made between the patient and the doctor and not the legislature. And in these times, we've seen in other parts of the state hospitals close or wings of hospitals close. It can't happen here. And so I will continue to do what I can. Um, and much of, much of that is in, you know, as we talked about earlier in the day, talking to the values of the mm-hmm. residents of Boise. And I'd say, frankly, these are the residents, the values of the residents of Idaho at this point um, and the importance of creating space and safety for our medical professionals um, and for the folks that need that medical care at really important and often really tough times of their lives. Yeah. Another kind of similar topic, um, you know, House Bill 71 uh, was passed last year, uh, Idaho's gender-affirming care ban for youth um, in the state. And we're recording this right after uh, an Idaho representative just put forward a, a bill to kind of legally define uh, and and kind of merge the terms gender and sex in Idaho law, which uh, I find, as a non-binary person, I find quite funny because I'm like, will I legally not exist if this bo- bill goes through? And again, it's not funny. No, it's um, because dark you, humor. Yeah, you kind of have to laugh. <laughs> Uh, in my in my opinion, um, but anyway, so House Bill seventy one is currently on pause. Um, there's an injunction on it, but the lawsuit is currently uh, still going forward. The state is still trying to say that you know we can enforce this. Boise uh, specifically has um, approved in in twenty twenty right after Roe v Wade fell uh, a provision to essentially deprioritize. I believe is the word kind of enforcing Idaho's abortion bans. I'm curious, um, can you talk to, will the city of Boise implement anything similar uh, regarding gender-affirming care ban, uh, whether it be House Bill 71 or something else? You know, like, I appreciate that question. Um, It's not one that residents have brought to me, to be honest. And it's something I ought to think about. I do want to point out that after the governor signed House Bill 71 last year, I did what I often do, and that is restate the values that I have, that this city has, and that is that every person in this community is welcome. And I was clear in my concern with regard to this bill that this really put trans kids at risk. It took power away from parents who were doing everything in their power to protect their kids, in many cases, to prevent them from doing what we see too often, which is to consider suicide. We see that way too many times in the trans community, trans kids. And this was a bill with its signing that put hundreds of kids around the state and in this community at risk. And I'm really concerned about that. And those are some of the conversations I had on porches. I talked with a mom in Southeast Boise whose trans son had just left for college and he left the state. And she said, I don't know that he'll come back. She's like, I'm so glad that he was already 18 because if he'd been younger, we both would have left so I could keep him healthy, take care of him. She's like, but now I'm so worried that he won't believe that this is a place for him. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to say over and over again. It is. Uh, Just last week, a group of people gathered with an administration official to talk about the very real consequences of the bill um, the medical community gathered and joined that conversation. 
Um, I appreciate the question about a resolution. I can tell you um, that we have policies in place, you know, in libraries and other places um, to take care of and, and to serve everyone. Um, but I'll give some thinking as to whether or not um, a resolution can get us where we need to be on this one in particular. Yeah, I appreciate that. Okay, before we wrap up, um, we just talked about some very important, essential conversations around Boise and the future. Um, but before we wrap up, we, we want to play a game. We want to do some lightning round questions to you uh, to learn a little bit more about you outside of office. Are you game? I am I am game. Okay, okay. Right. Stretch. Are you ready? I, yeah. got my, I got my running shoes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite lunch spot near City Hall? You've, you've only got a few minutes to go. You got to go. What's your favorite spot? Oh, if I only have a few minutes, I go over to JD's bodega and get hot dogs. Love. <laughs> hot dogs. <Yeah. laughs> oh, my God. I love that. I was not expecting that. Um, <laughs> two for $4 with a drink. It's the best deal in town. Oh, all right. Uh, you heard it here. Um, okay. You have a friend from college who was super cool and is still super cool, and you want to impress them. So where, where do you take them in Boise to show off? Oh, I've been planning this because all my college friends are planning a weekend to come visit. Um, I mean, I think just being in Boise is the show off, right? Um, <laughs> stand up at the depot, you show them the city. And um, for me, it, it's this is this isn't a quick answer, so I'm failing on the lightning round because it's both <laughs> it's restaurants, it's Eighth Street, it's the river, it's the Greenbelt, it's bogus in the winter, it's all those things. Um, and then it's just like soaking up the essence of Boise, which is walking through neighborhoods that are yeah. just so unique. Yeah. Okay. You have to pick one uh, and then tell us where you're getting which one of these. Okay. Finger steaks, fries and fry sauce, or Basque food? Oh, fries and fry sauce for sure. Um, my go-to is because it's right across the street is Boise Fry. They'll tell you I'm there way too often. Um, <laughs> and I like garlic aioli sauce the most. A good standard. I, I respect that. Okay. Uh, favorite Boise author, fiction, nonfiction, something you've read by a Boise author? Oh, Tony Dorr, hands down. And I loved his work even before everybody knew him <laughs> because of All the Light You Cannot See. Um, but I just um, picked up All the Light again after watching the show. And it's weird, the like, physical, emotional reaction I had just to even the first chapter um, yeah. reminded me um, how important and loved that book it, that, by me. Yeah. yeah, we love Tony. We love Tony here. Yeah, uh, I have a, I have a feeling of which one you're going to pick, but Greenbelt or Foothills? Foothills. Yeah. Okay, and then following up, so favorite trail? Mm, not telling. <gasps> oh, gatekeeping. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> also, probably a safety measure. Good call. Good call. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> no, not safety measure. Um, no, I I will tell you. I really don't want to. Um, Daniel's Creek has always been my mm. favorite, and even before we acquired it, it was. Just one of those ones. And see, I don't, I don't call them what they're called. So I'm saying Daniel's <laughs> Creek. So maybe you can find it. Maybe you can't. Sure. Um, yeah. It, it, that, that, that area is my favorite. And I was so excited when the city was able to acquire, acquire an easement to that area. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and I hope, I hope that we can have you back on soon. But thank you for your time. Well, thanks, Blake. Thanks, Frankie. Happy to join anytime. I really enjoyed this. Um, okay. And I will commit to you that I will remember that I can listen to podcasts when I walk to work yeah, next perfect. week when I'm walking and I'll find a couple episodes and listen. Great. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you.
Okay, that's all for today here on CityCast Boise. If you enjoyed the show, tell a friend about us. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more local stories from around the city. See you then.